Chris. How are you? I am awesome. Welcome back to be a co-host on the Sausage of Science. It is lovely to pleasure. see you again. Yes, it is. Always wonderful. I'm super excited today. We have um, we have an allele speaker. I don't think you and I have had the opportunity to do an interview together with one of our allele speakers. So I should maybe run down what that is. So we have this cool program here at the University of Alabama called Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution. And I just like to take a moment to brag a little bit about having an evolution program in the state of Alabama. Because when I arrived here in 2009, a study of K through 12 evolution education had just come out. And Alabama had the ignominious distinction of being dead last, 50 out of 50 states. And we got an F minus. And yet, and the reason for that is because we had no evolution education standards on the books at all in the state of Alabama. So we, but we already had this evolution speaker series here. It was already in its like fourth year. And I think part of that's because we are the institution where E.O. Wilson went to school. He's from here. And so we had this cool thing going on. And it's like in its 16th year now, which I just think is so cool. And in the meantime, we started an evolutionary studies minor around it. So we've been having cool folks like this come in for a long time. And one of the reasons I started this podcast was I was like, we have so many people come through who give these lectures to our students and our faculty, but I think we should be able to share these lectures with everybody. Some of them are so good, we would we would then edit them for um, sort of to be podcast worthy and we'd, we'd recast them. That's actually how the podcast got started. So sort of like coming full circle. No need for us to be selfish with, with important information. No, but but we are because I don't do that anymore. I just interview them and, and tell people to go to the Vimeo to see the whole thing. So today I want to introduce all of our listeners to our guests. We're going to be talking to Dr. Ed Hagen, who's here to, to give a talk on the very same topic we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Hagen is professor of evolutionary anthropology at Washington State University. I want to ask him about that, about being professor. I always say I'm professor of biocultural medical anthropology, but in reality, I'm just professor of anthropology. So I don't know if that's like their program or how he describes himself. That'll be interesting. But he uh, actually got his BA in math from UC Berkeley and spent time doing organic polymer research uh, before deciding to pursue an anthropology degree, which he did at UC Berkeley. And he got his degree there in 1999 and then went on to a postdoc in theoretical biology. Very, very interesting pedigree. And for the first time, I'm going to agree if he says, I had a kind of a different path than many people. Because usually everybody says that, but it's always like their path is like my arm is going up and down. It means people's paths are wavy. But they don't often involve a math degree. He focuses on evolutionary medicine, and some of the topics of his research are non-communicable, non-infectious diseases, especially those relating to mental health, depression, suicide, deliberate harm, child growth and development, evolutionary models of leadership, which I think is really interesting, reminds me of David Sloan Wilson's work, maybe, evolution of music and dance, informational warfare, and then the topic of today's conversation, plant neurotoxins and the paradox of drug research. So we're going to talk to him about a brand new article that came out last year called 
Homo medicus, the transition to meat eating, increased pathogen pressure, and the use of pharmacological plants in Homo. And it was published last year in American Journal of Biological Anthropology with Aaron Blackwell, Aaron Leitner, and Roger Sullivan. And what what did you think of it, Christina? Do you have a chance to get through it all? I did. Really fascinating. Definitely a series of... Uh... It's like 20 theories of topics of discussions. <laughs> yeah, it's like 20 of the theories that we use a lot all linked together in a super elegant way. It's like this rich heuristic model. Um, it makes me want to like, I've, I've tipped my toe into drug research and it makes me want to sort of like go full board now with new theoretical ideas and things to test. Let's let's bring him on. Ed, can you hear me? I can hear you. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the Sausage of Science and welcome to Tuscaloosa. Thank you. Glad to be here. Have you ever been to Alabama before? I may have driven across it once back in the day. <laughs> I had never driven across it my whole life before coming here, but I've been here 14 years and it's a lovely place. So uh, we're happy to have you here. We're happy to have you on the podcast. I would like to introduce you to my co-host today, Christina Gildy, from just down the road from you, actually, when you're at home. Um, she's at WashU. You're at Washington State. University of Washington. Oh, I'm sorry. A little different. Same state, hanging out. My daughter just started there. So, oh, congratulations. What does she have a major yet? Or environmental science is what she's looking at right now. So, a good one. It's an excellent program. We like to start, as always, by getting to know how the sausage of the scientist was made, how you came to be doing what you're doing. And as Chris mentioned earlier, you have a very interesting um, background prior to, to getting to do the work that you're doing. Um, and we got a pretty good sense of your path of how you got here, but we don't have a lot of anthropologists that we have the pleasure of interviewing who started out with math degrees. So you started with math, moved to polymer research. How did you find your way to anthropology? Yeah, to, to try and keep it relatively short, I was uh, your typical geeky kid who was into rockets and robots and computers and sci-fi and dungeons and dragons and uh, always thought I would have a career in the natural sciences but as I pursued that career as an undergrad at UC Berkeley uh, I started out actually in physics and then switched to math but I just noticed that I would do my homework and but then I wouldn't go home and be thinking about physics or math. I'd be kind of thinking about people and uh, who we are as a species, to put it as I would put it in uh, terms today. Um, and it was tough for me because I didn't have any background in biology or social science or anything. And so although I knew I was losing interest in the natural sciences, um, I didn't have any picture of what I actually was interested in and what I did want to devote my career to. And so spent a lot, many, many years wandering in the wilderness trying to find that path. Um, and so to, to keep myself afloat, I, uh, I took a job in a polymer lab as a, as a research tech. A friend of mine was setting up his lab at Berkeley and asked me to set up his lab for him. Um, 
And so I had a lot of those technical skills to do that, but I was reading voraciously. And during lunch, I would sneak off to classes by George Lakoff and Brent Berlin and uh, John Searle, uh, all these big names at Berkeley. And I realized that that's something about that was really the direction I wanted to go in, something that had to do with who we are um, as a species. And I just began to put together sort of a crude idea of what we might today call evolutionary psychology. Um, I had learned in a random breadth class, uh, Mesopotamian prehistory, that we only transitioned to farming 10,000 years ago, and that really we had spent most of our evolution um, as hunter-gatherers. And so I, I realized to really crack the nut of, of, of human nature, we really needed to understand our long evolutionary history as hunter-gatherers. And so I decided I wanted to devote my career to that. And I didn't know anything about anthropology at all. I, I had no idea, um, but I just decided to jump in feet first. So that's that's the gist of it. That's a really cool story. And, you know, it, for a lot of our a lot of our listeners are grad students or undergrads who are who are heading into the into the field. So I think it's really important to hear that people find their ways from lots of different paths. And it sort of clarifies actually the answer to my next question, because it sounds like you you probably picked up a lot of skills along the way that you've applied in your work that other people don't necessarily have coming from different backgrounds. But when I, and I, when I did my PhD, I'd had seven years off and, and two other careers. And I was, I came back with this voracious interest in everything. And right. so I was doing evolutionary psychology. I was doing uh, toxicant research with him. And this was in a, you know, a climate where even though I had an evolutionary psychologist on my committee, there were still some tensions between anthropology and evolutionary psychology. And we can we can get that to that later. But my advisor actually explicitly said he was worried about me because I had broad interests and I was a jack of all trades, but he didn't know if I would be employable because I was so all over all over the place. And I'm fascinated by all of your topics. So I wonder how you also uh develop those broad interests and in how you handle uh, all those varied projects. Yeah, it is it is tough and you're you're absolutely right because I um there's not too many uh, anthropologists studying mental health and the few that are are typically on either the cultural side or maybe the public health side. So studying mental health from an evolutionary perspective um there's maybe uh, two other <laughs> Two other folks doing that, at least in, in evolutionary anthropology. So, and it did. I, I got my PhD in 1999, and I didn't get a um, tenure track job until 2007. So, in that final year, I, I sent out like 130 applications to just about every open job in every social science uh, department around the country. Um, so, it has been tough. Um, but as you know, and, and anyone in academia knows, to really make it work, you you have to be really interested in what you're doing. Otherwise, it's just going to be impossible to, to stick with it. So I uh, I took a gamble and have kind of stuck with the stuff that I really am interested in. Managing it, I, I do think there is a trade-off. Um, you know, as the more projects you do, the harder it is to, to stay on top of all of them. And I'm not sure that I've actually uh, optimized that those sets of trade-offs, which, which definitely do exist. But I was just sort of, uh, when I get inspired, I figure I got to go with that inspiration because uh, it may not return. So so when uh, the spark uh, strikes, uh, go with it. Um, so that's kind of the philosophy I've used and it's worked pretty well for me so far. 
I love that. And one of the things that I, I do love about what you're, it, it, the way you describe that is, I don't know how it is on the West Coast, but, you know, I was at Rutgers at one point where there were like hostile tensions between sociobiology, evolutionary psychology, biological anthropologists. And then I actually had someone come up to me before I went to grad school, tell me not to work with so-and-so because they were evil. I also study religion. I also study mental health and integrate a lot of evolutionary psychology. And I just read a passage from Tim Ingold, who pointed out that anthropology is pretty Cartesian in splitting off, for the most part, cognitive studies from anatomical and physiological studies. And that struck me. And so one, I wanted to just sort of ask you about your experience with sort of the, the politics of this. But then, you know, like I want to dig into how you then navigated that to start doing research on depression, anxiety and, and drug use. Um, how did you find your way to studying tobacco and, and these uh, these substances? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. At Santa Barbara, where I got my PhD, there was a big split in the department. I think it still probably exists between the evolutionary anthropologists on the one side and the cultural anthropologists on the other side. And um, it was really difficult for us grad students uh, because we were getting a lot of benefit from both sides uh, in our courses. And we really bent over backwards to not let the divisions at the faculty level infect us at the um, graduate student level. And I have to really say that I think we were successful by and large that my closest friends um, in grad school were on the cultural side and we really you know respected each other and cared about each other and it just been was great. Um, but the division at the faculty level was really tough and miserable. I imagine it still is the, the department there de facto split into two because of this. And that's a common pattern that we've seen in many departments um, across the country. So when I got my PhD and then started working at the Institute for Theoretical Biology, it was a massive relief because <laughs> nobody's questioning science, nobody's questioning evolution. Um, we're all using the same framework. And I just, it was such a relief to to be in an institute where I didn't have to justify using a scientific approach or an evolutionary approach. And I dreaded, it, that was a postdoc. So I dreaded coming back to anthropology because I worried that I would end up in one of these departments that is really miserably split. That would be what would likely happen. But I really lucked out. At WSU, they had an evolutionary stream, which was not as most anthropology departments are organized around methods, like you're an archaeologist or you're a cultural anthropologist or, you know, you dig up bodies, but instead organized around evolutionary theory. And this is pretty unique. It is and was and still is a very collegial department. We really do all get along. There isn't a lot of questions about using evolutionary theory. So we have been very, very fortunate at WSU to avoid most of, of the conflicts that other folks have had to deal with. And so I, I don't get any credit for that. That was kind of existing when I when I showed up, um, but we've managed to, to maintain that so far, fingers crossed, knock on wood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from being a member of essentially a, a unicorn department and working to maintain that, yeah. um, let's, let's talk a little bit about your paper, which it sounds like came out of this excellent environment where you, that you have to, to ask these sorts of questions and, and feel uh, supported in doing that. Um, you start this paper 
by hypothesizing that the current use of plant-derived therapeutics stems from non-human primate self-medication for a variety of reasons. Uh, so for instance, chimps knowing which uh, types of leaf bundles to eat to uh, either mechanically or chemically move intestinal worms out of their systems. A couple of cases you talk about knowing, you know, which foods to avoid, which foods to consume. How do you think that this non-human primate knowledge evolved? That's, that's a big question. And we do see what is called self-medication, not just in chimps, but in many other primate species, but many other species. So birds um, line their nests with toxic plants to kill a lot of the invertebrate parasites that are that infect nests. Um, we even have examples of, of birds collecting cigarette butts and, and weaving cigarette butts uh, into their nests. The nicotine in the tobacco is a, a potent insecticide. So we see a lot of invertebrates using plant secondary compounds, plant defensive chemicals to fight their own pathogens. We see it um, in a lot of primate species. And yeah, how does that evolve. And there has to be some connection between the immune system, likely, and behavior. So neuroimmune interactions and neuroimmune connections. And we don't really know very much about that. Um, can it be related to taste? So plant toxins, we do have specialized proteins in our tongues, receptors to, and in our guts, these, these taste receptors are not just uh, expressed in our tongues, they're expressed in our gut tissues, in our uh, lung tissues, in many, many tissues, actually. So we probably have many, many ways of detecting uh, plant toxins in our diets. And then is that somehow connected, <clears throat> does the, do those signals from those taste receptor proteins somehow connect into the immune system? And could there be a back and forth there between dietary preferences? So your immune system picks up that you're getting exposed to a pathogen, and then it may change your dietary preferences to include more bitter toxic substances into your diet, or maybe even more complex behaviors. But that's how I would conjecture that these connections have evolved is, is some sort of neuroimmune interactions where your immune system is constantly monitoring the pathogen environment. Um, and then talks to the immune system to maybe change diet or other kinds of, of behaviors uh, in response to that. This article is so is so rich in hy hypotheses that are that are falsifiable, right? This is one of the cool things about a great uh, theory paper like this that knits things together. So the next piece that I want to ask you about is the epidemiological transition that you propose. So we've had a few guests on the show before talking about the the quote-unquote standard epidemiological transitions that we often talk about in epidemiology and also in anthropology. So transitions from foraging to uh, horticulture, agriculture, from agriculture to service, uh, trade, industry, so on and so forth, and the, the demographic changes, mortality, birth rates that accompany those. But you propose another epidemiological transition that is going to have a huge impact on our diets and our immune system. And I wonder if you can unpack that for us. Yeah. So an epidemiological transition is when our pathogen environment seems to have changed rather dramatically. And so moving backward in time, we have, as you mentioned, a big transition with the modern era where we have the germ theory of disease. And we now understand that these infectious diseases come from microbes 
And that gives us incredibly powerful tools to deal with that with sanitation and antibiotics and vaccines. And so we are living today in this uh, remarkably, despite the pandemic, uh, despite the pandemic, we're still living in a, in a remarkable uh, era where we really rarely die from infectious um, diseases. Now we move backwards in time and just prior to our discovery of the germ theory of disease, about half of us would have died from infectious disease. And that probably goes back a long, long ways. But there was a epidemiological transition when we went from probably relatively small dispersed hunter-gatherer bands throughout the Pleistocene to more sedentary, um, high-density populations, many of which involved domesticated animals. And so that's where most anthropologists have more or less uh, kind of stopped, that that was the, the big epidemiological transition from hunting and gathering to agriculture and pastoralism. And that would have also involved a big shift in the kinds of diseases that we're exposed to, because of course, if you're interacting closely with animals, uh, a lot of diseases are going to come over your living with animals. But we propose that there was um, an even more ancient epidemiological transition when we transitioned from relying mostly on wild plant foods, ape and hominin uh, ancestors, to meat. And the reason is that you're very unlikely to be infected with a plant pathogen. So when you're eating plant foods, you uh, are going to be exposed to other animal pathogens through feces or other bodily fluids. But the foods, the plants themselves, plants are infected with, with lots of things, but they are so specialized for plants that they're extremely unlikely to infect you. There, there are rare cases in immunocompromised individuals where you can acquire actually a plant pathogen as a human, but they're very, very, very rare. But once we transition from plant foods to increasingly animal foods around the beginning of the Pleistocene is when we, we begin to see that transition toward meat eating in the human lineage. We're now eating uh, foods, animal foods, with pathogens that are adapted to not only animals, but adapted to mammals. Um, and if we're hunting primates, they're adapted to primates. And if we're hunting apes, which we probably were, they're adapted to our close relatives. And so now our very foods are infected with pathogens that are pre-adapted to infect us. So what we're proposing is that that shift to a meat-based diet is going to bring us increasingly in contact with pathogens in our diets that are actually pretty closely adapted to infecting animals very, very similar to ourselves. And so that the rate of zoonotic spillover, as it's called, from animal pathogens into the human lineage, would have, we propose, as you say, a testable hypothesis or a falsifiable hypothesis, uh, that that would have increased. And that would have required a lot of changes, we think, to take advantage of a meat-based diet. We now have to deal with that new challenge of increased spillover of, of zoonotic diseases um, into the human lineage. And we actually have um, at least a, a few clear examples of this happening, that we have pathogens with us today that appear to have spilled over into our lineage from carnivores or prey species um, into the human lineage in the Pleistocene. That's absolutely fascinating. I have always been really uh, interested in this idea of the behavioral immune system, which you you mentioned earlier and right uh, yeah. fairly extensively about. At one point in the paper, you you use this to to start to explain the 
the adoption of the use of certain spices and different plant therapies uh, as adaptive. But you also critique uh, previous explanations or other types of explanations that say that these types of therapies and these types of spices are about temperature or about food spoilage. Can you talk a little bit about the critiques that you have for that? Um, spices are plant foods that are very high in what we call plant secondary compounds, basically plant defensive chemicals or toxins, but with very little nutritional value, very few calories. So why are we why are we dumping uh, plant toxins into our meals? And a, a standard story for a long, long time has been that these have a lot of antimicrobial properties and um, would have been a good way to kill foodborne pathogens. And the, the idea there was that they were largely, of course, we're all well aware that if you leave uh, some meat sitting out on your counter, it's going to um, start to spoil pretty quickly. And so, and that would be happen more quickly in warmer climates compared to cooler ones. So the, the link between meat and pathogens was largely through this food spoilage model, which of course is very plausible. And so we're not so much critiquing that, but that we think that's not the only path by which pathogens enter meat-based diet, but that meat itself is going to be infected, wild meats with all kinds of pathogens. So it's more, we feel there should be more emphasis on the spillover risk from meat-based foods, not just the spoilage risk, because those pathogens aren't ones that are infecting the live animals. Um, they're infecting a kind of a dead piece of meat. Um, and we're worried about the ones that are infecting the live animals that could then spill over into us. So we're arguing that the spices could equally well have protected us from that spillover risk. And that's not temperature dependent. So if you've got reindeer uh, up in the Arctic or subarctic or uh, sea mammals, they could easily be infected with all kinds of things, um, even though you're in freezing temperatures that can, um, with fresh meat, that can easily spill over and infect you. So we think that the spice story might apply equally or perhaps more even to, to the spillover risk rather than the, than the spoilage risk that people have been talking about. In the article, you have this beautiful network analysis diagram. In general, beautiful graphics. Folks should check this out, especially the color version of the table of anti-inflammatory stuff. I've been showing all my students, like, look at turmeric right down here. It's like yeah. almost completely, yeah. So um, so in depiction, it's a, it's a network analysis, not of people, like a social network analysis, but of medical knowledge and skills and then other knowledge skills aspects of sociality so i wonder if you could sort of tell us more about that and relationship between plant medical knowledge and, and skills in other domains we are proposing our, our kind of big idea in the paper and where the title comes from homo medicus is that in our proposal of a new or not a new but a, a, this early epidemiological transition how do we deal with that if, if, in fact, uh, we were exposed to a much higher rate of zoonotic spillover and zoonotic disease as a consequence of moving into a more carnivorous dietary niche, what was our response? And what we're proposing is that um, spices, um, as Christina brought up, is, is one of the things that we began to selectively include more plants into the diet, specifically plants with a lot of these antimicrobial properties. 
Um, but would that have been the only way uh, to deal that once you get a zoonotic disease, um, that's not going to help you anymore. Uh, so that's to kind of prevent getting the disease in the first place. But now once you get the infection, you may need to treat it. And a lot of these plant toxins might have been good medicines. So there's a, there's a whole pharmacy of potential anti-infectious agents that you can use to actually treat diseases once you are infected. And so we're arguing that this may have been a selection pressure for uh, traditional medicine. Um, beginning to develop uh, knowledge and understanding of plant medicines um, in the human lineage. And of course, when we look at traditional societies today, they all have some version of medical specialists in them. They have typically a very rich um, traditional medicine. Um, and in fact, many Western medicines come from traditional medicines uh, because folks have discovered <laughs> these plants actually do help with this disease. And in fact, um, a Nobel Prize was handed out not too long ago for one of those traditional medicines that um, is very good at treating malaria. In fact, it's one of the frontline uh, treatments to this day. So we are arguing that that transition would have been a selection for an interest in and um, the cognitive abilities to begin to put together uh, specialized medical knowledge that um, are um, effective in your particular region. Um, so that's that's the basic idea. Um, one of the things that has been particularly interesting to me is the argument that you make against uh, the evolutionary mismatch hypothesis for approaching this, that uh, approaching recreational drug use, that recreational drug use, uh, the argument is that it uh, the use of recreational drugs is hijacking the the dopaminergic circuitry by you know, triggering reward circuits. And instead you're making a natural selection argument for habitual drug use. Can you walk us through that? How, how habitual drug use uh, could be interpreted as pathogen defense specifically? So you're right. The standard story is that drugs like tobacco and marijuana and cocaine and heroin are evolutionarily novel, that we weren't exposed to these things over our course of our evolution and therefore we haven't evolved any defenses against all their genuinely negative <laughs> impacts on uh, folks' lives, which is undisputable. So then how is it that we use these things? And the idea is that these activate uh, reward circuitry in our brain by accident and hijack our brains into making us think that we're getting some great fitness benefit when in fact we're just poisoning ourselves. Um, so that's the standard story out there. And where we come in uh, with my colleague, Roger Sullivan, and I, we actually started working on this um, when we were both grad students. And we were both working on the evolution of mental health. And we knew that folks suffering mental health problems uh, were voracious drug users. And so we wanted to begin to develop a model of, of that's where how we started, of, of drug use in folks with mental health problems, schizophrenia or depression. Um, and so what we thought is we have to start, what is the evolutionary origin of these drugs? Where do they come from? Why do they even exist on planet Earth? And um, of course, we knew that these are all plant toxins. Um, so we thought, why, you know, what, what's going on here? We know that plants evolved these compounds to defend against their own herbivores and pathogens that are infecting them. And in broad perspective, um, the same things that eat plants eat us. 
And so compounds that plants evolve to kill or harm or deter the things that eat them might also kill or harm or deter the things that eat us, i.e. the pathogens that infect us. And as we investigated this further, we recognized that, uh, and what we learned is that every single recreational drug today that's popular today, be it tobacco or caffeine or marijuana or cocaine, all kill intestinal worms, every single one of them. And so we began to think, could this, what looks like kind of hijacked reward circuitry driving the use of tobacco, instead be a self-medication strategy analogous to what we do see in chimpanzees and other animals where they deliberately incorporate toxic plants into their diets to kill their own parasites. And, and so the logic is that these recreational drugs um, are all pesticides and they're good ones and they're effective ones. And actually for decades, farmers use nicotine to deworm their livestock. So we know they work in vivo, at least if you get a big enough dose. To, to kill worms. So what we're proposing is that what looks like uh, a very maladaptive behavior, which in fact it can be, uh, especially in modern environments where we have much more effective <laughs> treatments of these pathogens, that is a way of habitually flooding your system with anti-parasitic compounds that would kill or at least decrease your parasite load of, of things that have infected us from the dawn of time. I could think of some ways to test some of those things, right? So it's theoretically testable. And why I, I said that is because it, I get students asking me, so I've not done the kind of research you have, but I, I study trance and dissociation and I've speculated about drug use. But I'm also, you know, a big fan of Pat McGovern's work, the drunken monkey hypothesis, Robert Dudley, Michael Pollan's work on botany of desire and thinking about how some of these plants have co-evolved with us maybe to get themselves spread and that and, and some of these effects are byproducts. But students always want to ask me about the stoned ape hypothesis and did using psychedelics result in some change in neural pathways, right? And I think of this as like, um, what was his name? Uh, Wallace, who wrote about revitalization cults and the peyote cults, talked about mazeway resynthesis. Um, and he was talking about mental health issues as well. This idea that drugs or intensive therapy or trans, uh, transcendental experiences can somehow alter your neural pathways. It's not really falsifiable. So it's one of the issues I have with the stoned ape hypothesis. And I, I, I guess what I'm asking is sort of what you think about that. And is there room for those models in, in what you're proposing? Uh, yes and no. So what I would say is if you look at any utilitarian behavior that humans engage in, be it food or shelter, or in this case, let's say self-medication, we elaborate it. So we might think, oh, we just go get our calories and then we're done. But of course, we ritualize food use uh, up the well. <laughs> and you might think, oh, I'm just going to put on some clothes. Uh, but we, of course, elaborate clothing uh, tremendously um, and shelters. We might just build a utilitarian shelter, but no, we have to, again, um, elaborate and ritualize. So all of these utilitarian behaviors in humans get elaborated one way or another. And that's going to be true with, with medical stuff. If we're right that there is this utility to the medicinal use of these substances, it's going to get elaborated and ritualized just as every other utilitarian behavior does. So at least 
part of it, I would say, is that we're doing the same thing with, with the self-medication that we do with every other utilitarian behavior and incorporate it into rituals and meaning and all kinds of much more complex kinds of displays and signaling and, and all the theories that have been used to try and understand rituals in humans. So that would be part of it. My skepticism about some of the stronger versions of the hypothesis would be that if we think about manipulating neural pathways over evolutionary time, what's the more efficient way? These are the reason these drugs work is that they interfere with neural signaling and they do that by mimicking our neurotransmitters or some aspect of our neural signaling systems or cellular signaling systems. And that means that we endogenously produce all of these compounds um, like acetylcholine and dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and plants have evolved to um, interfere with that signaling. Now, what is the best way to change the signaling if it's actually adaptive to change our own neural signaling? Is it better? Is it going to be more efficient that your body evolves uh, you know, modifications to its own neural signaling or cellular signaling pathways? or that you have to go out and find some plant that may or may not exist and treat it in a particular way and learn how to use it and then use that to, in a very crude way, manipulate your own uh, neural signaling. I think that second argument is just very implausible that evolution is not gonna select for that sort of mechanism to actually kind of adaptively manipulate your own pathways. It's going to directly alter it by altering uh, receptor proteins and, and other aspects of your endogenous signaling system. The one exception, and this is where Roger and I kind of first came into this, is if you have if your neural signaling systems are not working properly due to infection or some exposure or some injury. So that's kind of when we were working on mental health is could you partially compensate for some sort of malfunction in your own brain circuitry by ingesting what are essentially neurotransmitter analogs. So nicotine is basically kind of like acetylcholine. Um, and a lot of, you know, psychedelics are, you know, basically interfering with serotonin signaling. So could they in some sense compensate in the rare cases when something's going wrong in your neural signaling pathways? Um, so we still have that idea kind of hanging out there as a, again, a way, a form of self-medication, not necessarily against parasites, but against, you know, every every mechanism can malfunction. So if, you're, if your brain is malfunctioning, what can you do about it? Maybe you can partially compensate for some of those deficits with some of these neurotransmitter analogs that plants are constantly evolving. So that's that was kind of our, our initial entree into this whole area actually was with that idea. I love that idea. And of course, as a graduate student, uh, interactions with how coffee can improve your behavior and cognitive functioning are fairly intuitive. <laughs> to yeah. Me. And with that um, one, plants have an interest in manipulating your psychology. So plants mostly want to deter you from eating them. So that's where all these compounds, why nicotine and caffeine exist. But plants also have an interest in you remembering that they're toxic. So if we look at venomous animals, they advertise that they are venomous. So yellow jackets have these very distinctive black and yellow bands because they want you to remember that uh, I'm dangerous. Don't don't mess with me. Um, and we see that in a lot of animals. Um, it's called aposematism. And so could plants be engaging in a form of that by evolving compounds that not only are toxic and dangerous, but that enhance your memory of their toxicity and danger? Um, or if they're trying to get you to disperse their pollen or their seeds to remember. So not only are they going to give you either a toxin load or a sugar load, but they may also give you a little bit of a 
some sort of compound that's going to help you remember that that's where you got hit with the toxin or found. So they're kind of reaching in, plants are evolving to reach inside your brain and manipulate you in ways that benefit them. We have one, we, we sort of toggle at the end to uh, a silly side of ourselves or a fun side of ourselves. And so this, the HBA apparently used to have a talent show at some point before any mm -hmm. of our times. And uh, we we're sort of jokingly lobbying to, to bring it back. So were that to be the case, and we could hunt you down in the AABA meeting and pull you over to the room we're in, what talent might we expect you to showcase for us? Or what could we cajole you possibly into demonstrating for us? Yeah, I don't know if, if it's anything we could do at the HBA meetings, but as that kind of geeky kid, um, I was really into cars and so old Volvos. So if you had an old Volvo from the 1960s uh, that you either wanted to soup up or fix or get it running, um, I'd be your guy. Uh, so if you've got a, uh, for those of you who know your old Volvos, a, a P1800 or a 122, um, and you want to rebuild the engine or... Um, Get a little bit more performance out of it. I could, uh, I could definitely give you a hand there. My dad had a woodworking and metal shop, um, so uh, if you needed some, uh, some custom woodwork or some maybe some metalwork, I might be able to help you out uh, there. None of those things would be easy to import into a HBA meeting, um, but if you were out in the parking lot with your old Volvo and there was something wrong. Um, I might be able to uh, to help you diagnose it. Um, awesome. We'll be doing that. So um, if you if we do meet up at the HBA and you do have a 1960s or early 70s uh, Volvo, even if it's not malfunctioning, uh, let's let's head out to the parking lot and check it out. Fantastic. I actually have a current grad student who's gearhead, so he just wrote a piece on cars and evolution, trying to trying to put them together. But I also I have to laugh because uh, Wendy Trevathan's talent is parallel parking. So we can sort of do it <laughs> for yeah. one. There we go. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been obviously wonderful having you on the show. And it's it's going to be great uh, having dinner with you tonight and seeing the talk. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm sure Christina has enjoyed our conversation today. I want to let everybody out there listening know that you can find more about all of our guests, of course, on the internet. Uh, Dr. Hagen's got a great site. Just Google his name. And if uh, I'll give him a second in a second, if he has a, a, any particular handles that he would like to point you to, but you can find uh, The Sausage of Science on Spotify. It's on Apple, iTunes. Now it's also uh, on our website for the Human Biology Association. Um, all of them are on SoundCloud and you can find me uh, at Chris underscore L-Y on whatever Twitter is called now. The Human Bio Association is Hum Bio Associ. Uh, and I think Christina has some handles. Just at Christina Gildy. You can find me on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, that bird site, where we are. I, I know you're you're on all the socials now, I notice. You're, you're back You've up. bullied me into it. It's, there we go. It's, do it. And, and Ed, are you social media? Yeah, I'm uh, pretty active on Twitter at uh, Ed underscore Hagen on Twitter. So you can uh, find me stirring up controversies on Twitter uh, if you want. Um, yeah, and I'm pretty much only on Twitter. So Love it. I'm also on Blue Sky, but that's not open yet. So I got the uh, I got a couple invitations. I have not yet gone there and tried them out, but I'm told it's starting to be a fun place with like happy uh, scholars talking about their work and not 
know. It is starting to recreate uh, good Twitter as far as uh, science Twitter goes. Yeah, cool. um, it's starting to to pull even. There's a there's a the critical mass is almost there. So. Awesome. Well, thank you, and uh, we will uh, we'll see you again in just a second in the hallway. I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> Christina, thank you. thank you. Thanks for having me. Very yeah, much. this is wonderful. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Good.